This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, Cardinal fans. I'm Ozzie Smith. Smith, Corks one into right down the line. It may go. And you're listening to the Cardinals Insider Podcast. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. Here's your host. Brett McMillan. Welcome, welcome. It's the Cardinal Insider Podcast for the week of April the 24th, broadcasting from our studios up here in the press box at Bush Stadium. My name is Brett McMillan. Glad to have you along with us. And we are in for a real treat as far as Cardinal, St. Louis, and baseball history go today. If you like any of those topics, and we know that a lot of you who listen also enjoy the present stuff with the current players, we try to bring you some of that, but I love baseball history, and judging by the emails we get, a lot of you do too, and so we wanted to bring you J.W. Porter today. If you don't know who that is, don't feel bad. Up until probably six to nine months ago, I had not heard of him, but he was one of the first men ever in the big leagues to catch Bob Gibson. And the reason that JW is part of the program today is because all summer long we're honoring Bob Gibson. It's part of our Complete Gamer campaign celebrating the life and career of Gibby. You can check out more, including a song that we commissioned and a music video that goes along with it celebrating Gibson's life, kind of detailing the numbers, the history, a really cool look, kind of in the style of Hamilton, which is big on Broadway right now. Again, all of that information and more on the campaign at cardinals.com slash Gibson. I want to thank Ed Wheatley from the St. Louis Browns Historical Society. He made the introduction between myself and JW. Ed has been instrumental in some of our coverage, uh, just kind of keeping Browns history alive. The DeWitt family has a real big tie to the Browns franchise in the past. And so they're very passionate about Browns history. And since the Browns have headed east to Baltimore back in the 50s, the Cardinals have kind of in some ways become the torchbearers for that history, along with Ed and his group. They do a great job at the St. Louis Browns Historical Society, and we thank him for both his uh, his contributions to the podcast here and then also what we do with Cardinals Insider TV when we've done features on the Browns or some of their former players. So big thanks to Ed for making this one possible. Hey, real quick, before we tell you more about JW, I want to let you know about an absolutely great ticket deal coming up. Community Coffee teaming up with the Cardinals to bring fans $5 tickets. You heard that right, just $5 as the Cardinals host the White Sox on May 1st and 2nd and then the Twins on May 7th and 8th. Get your $5 tickets now at cardinals.com slash communitycoffee. I have a cup of community coffee just about every morning. It's good stuff, and so is that ticket deal. $5, again, May 1st, 2nd, 7th, and 8th. Come check out the interleague action for 5 bucks. Cardinals.com slash community coffee is where you can get those tickets. So J.W. Porter, as I mentioned, you probably didn't know a lot about him. If you do, that's very impressive, but for those who don't, uh, a couple of things I think that you should know about J.W. before we get into it. You know, the context helps throughout the conversation just to kind of know who you're hearing from and that maybe helps you to frame the comments that you were hearing they'd be fine standing alone but I I think that context is always a good thing 
He won two straight Legion Baseball World Series titles as a youngster, including one against the St. Louis-based team. And then the Chicago White Sox picked up Porter as a bonus baby in 1951. Before the 52 season, they traded him off to the St. Louis Browns, a brownie for a single year. And then he played for Detroit, Cleveland, and Washington. And his pro career ends in 1959 with the St. Louis Cardinals. That's where he meets up with Bob Gibson in Gibby's rookie year in 59. And for a long time, J.W. actually thought that he'd caught Gibson's first big league appearance. As you'll hear, several decades down the road, Gibby and J.W. had a conversation, and Gibby set him straight on that in kind of an amusing and fun little tidbit of an interaction between two Cardinal alumni. You see Gibby pitched out of the bullpen early in 59, went back to what was then AAA Omaha, returned in late July, made two starts, and that is when J.W. first caught him. But still, Porter, one of the very first men to catch Gibson, he had a unique view of a fledgling career for Bob, one that turned into a Hall of Fame career. And J.W. was really clear that he had an impression of the pitcher that Bob could be from the early going. You'll want to hear that in just a little bit. You're also going to hear throughout the course of our talk about other great names that J.W. has run into over the years. Some he played with, some he played against, but guys like Satchel Paige, Al Kaline, Tom Seaver, Roger Maris, Stan Musial. And because he was hanging out with Stan one time, he actually got to meet a future president of the United States. J.W. now lives in Jupiter, West Palm Beach area down there on the east coast of Florida, and he's got some stories about players who came after him, even, because for a long time he was a fixture down at Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium, and in fact I wouldn't... uh, be surprised. I'm not for sure on this uh, because we recorded this actually a little before spring training, but I wonder if maybe he snuck out for a game or two. Used to be there for a lot of the spring training contest uh, just a couple of years ago. Now, JW doesn't stand for anything. There's a sad reason for that, and it has to do with his father's kind of racist attitudes as he was growing up and when they were deciding to name JW. You'll hear that story in a moment. But there is a poetic and welcome twist to that. J.W. got to play a role in standing for racial equality in the game. He and Larry Doby of the Cleveland Indians, who broke the AL color barrier, had a great bond. That's a neat story, one that's important to J.W. and one that we're going to talk about in just mere moments. So what a fascinating man, what a fascinating baseball life. I'll probably say that a couple times, but I think it's just the appropriate word today, a fascinating baseball life. It's J.W. Porter on the Cardinals Insider Podcast. As we promised at the top, J.W. Porter played for the Cardinals back in the 1950s and the Browns uh, at one point in 1952, and he has just a long list of baseball stories. The first thing I want to talk to you about, though, Jay, is you go by JW, but I hear that uh, the W part doesn't stand for anything. How did you come to get that initial? Well, the J doesn't stand for anything either. Where did that come from? Well, the true story on the subject is I was born in central Oklahoma, which in 1933 was still a little bit a racist state. And that included my father, because he had uh, been told by his uncles and father and 
older people uh, don't associate with them. Just leave them alone. Well, my mother wanted to name me James William. Dad's oldest brother was James. His name was Will. So it would stand for being named after my uncle and my father. But uh, Dad nixed it. No William or Bill or any of that. He said that that's a Negroid name. Now, the irony in all this is that it was common for someone to be given just an initial name in that section of the country. So they dropped everything and just used the J for James and the W for Will. Now, the irony in all this, when I was nine years old, we moved to Oakland, California. We lived right in the middle of Frank Robinson, Kurt Flood, Rita Pinson, on I can uh, 55 guys that I grew up with, coached by the same man, played Major League Baseball. Almost all of them were black. I and Larry Doby, according to Larry, broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball for black and white roommates. And that was in 1958. You were with the uh, the Cleveland Indians then, and I understand that it it meant a whole lot to you to be roommates with Larry and to to be able to um, to show the world that things were changing and things were equal in a good way. Uh, what was that time like? What did Larry tell you about his experience breaking into big league baseball, the first uh, African American man in the American League, and coming in shortly after Jackie Robinson did over with the Brooklyn Dodgers? We, we talked all night long for months about the way they were treated. Larry uh, took the same bull that Jackie did, but but you hardly ever heard anything about it. He had a home run in the World 48 World Series to win a game one to nothing. Steve Gromack, who was from Hamtramck, Michigan, suburb of Detroit, pitched shut out. Larry at the home run. Neither one of them were spoken to when he went home. Hmm. Steve grew up in all-white Hamtramck and his high school teammates wouldn't talk to him because there was a big picture in the paper of Larry and Steve hugging after they went the home. Just on and on. And uh, of course, uh, Mike Robinson was on my American Legion team, that the only team that went back and to back World Series championships. He and I used to talk about the same thing. He broke in in Charleston, uh, West Virginia, and uh, he went through the same thing. It was just unbelievable at, at the time, and. Uh, I did everything I could to uh, change it. I, I think I helped. You had a role there in a, a pretty serious, uh, a pretty serious way with Larry Doby. But I know that you had your fair share of fun in the baseball world too, like trying to get Eddie Murray's autograph one time in Baltimore. But there were some obstacles to that, J.W. Do you remember that story? Mr. Murray, you know, wouldn't sign an autograph. Uh, that made me mad. 
uh, he would hide the minute the game was over in spring training. He would run from the first base coaching box, if that's where he was, or the dugout, if that's where he was, to the right center field fence, and then follow it around to the break in the fence and down the left field foul line, jump in the bus so he didn't have to find an orca. And his teammate, Cal Ripken, drove his own car from Fort Lauderdale to Jupiter, Florida, where they were flying, so that he wouldn't hold up the team while he was signing everybody in the ballpark autograph. Now, how a guy can, can be a Hall of Famer and see that his teammate do that and do what he did just boggled my mind. I, I, you know, I told him so to reach his own, I guess. You played several different uh, different places in the big leagues, but I think one of your more interesting at-bats that I have heard about wasn't actually in big league play. It was in the Puerto Rican Winter League. You faced Sandy Koufax. Do you remember anything about that at-bat against Mr. Koufax? Well, I didn't fear it as much as I did the one at-bat I had against Steve Dolkowski, who never won Won a, won a game in his life, but could out throw Sandy by 10 miles an hour. He just couldn't throw it over home plate. The, the Sandy story, a, a good story, is whoever built the ballpark built it with the sun coming up behind the center field fence. And on Sunday, they, they played at 10 o'clock in the morning. And here is this big, bright Puerto Rican sun behind Sandy, and you can't hit him when you can see him. How are you going to hit him when you can? Did he get you out? Did you even swing, or did you just stand up there and hope that uh, the ball didn't didn't hit you? As I recall, I, I, I had walked the one and only time I hit it the cold side. That was a few weeks ago. <laughs> You've slept once or twice since then, huh? Just a couple of times. Hey, you had another interesting uh, time where you, uh, I believe this was in big league play, not down in the, the Puerto Rican Winter League, but you pinch hit one time for none other than Roger Maris, and JW, you didn't just pinch hit for him. Uh, you had a really good result. I'm sure that you remember that story, right? Yes, uh, and it kind of makes me mad because Ted Williams got pinch hit for one time. Kid's name was Carol. Al Kaline got pinch hit one time. And the whole world was told that story over and over and over. But when you pinch hit for Roger Maris, uh, you stepped in and you smacked a home run. Do you remember uh, what the situation was, why they decided to pinch hit Roger and, and slot you in there? Well, Roger Maris and the general manager, Frank Lane, Trader Lane, as they called him, didn't get along. And... Uh, even though Roger, uh, rookie year, I think he hit 270-something with 18 home runs and 75 runs by the way, something like that. But Frank Lane just simply didn't like Roger Maris. And uh, he, he was going to be traded. In fact, he was traded when we were playing a series in Washington. And I was at a... At, uh, we played the game, a day game, took a bus to the 
train station and we're going to have dinner at the train station. The old train station in Washington was in class. And they had tables for eight. So eight of us were sitting at one table. And Mr. Lane came by our table and asked me if I would move, that he wanted to speak to the other seven guys. And of course, that became a great move. All seven of those other guys were traded. This was that date we were trading in. Seven guys, three went to Boston, three went to Kansas City, uh, include Merritt, and I was the only one. I bet you're glad that you weren't asked to leave the table then, right? (laughs) Or that you were asked, I guess. It meant you weren't traded. Well, I don't know. I might have gotten to play more somewhere else, which was my problem the whole time I was in the major league. Yeah, you capped off essentially your your major league career. You played for the Browns for a little bit in '52, and for the Cardinals in '59. So uh, you had experiences on both sides of that here in St. Louis. And for those who didn't get to see the Browns play in St. Louis, I think we always wonder what was it like when there was two teams in town, and what were the real differences. Uh, being a guy that played for both, what do you think? What was what was the biggest difference between playing for the Browns and playing for the Cardinals? <laughs> Well, one team was good and the other team wasn't. <laughs> I loved St. Louis, both teams. Uh, they were totally different, but you couldn't scout the United States of America and come up with better people. Dan Musial couldn't be top. Ned Garver with Roy Seaver. I mean, these are, I still dream about this. And then, of course, we had Mr. Jack to teach him. You never knew what he was going to do. Uh, and the fans. There weren't all that many of them, but they were special. And explaining. I think about it all the time. For years and years and years, they had a drowning banquet or a roundup, as they called it. And there was an auditorium in town big enough to hold a number of people that wanted to pay $100 for a steak dinner. They wanted to see Ned. They wanted to see Roy. It's just something special, baseball and Louis. Yeah, certainly there is. And uh, in the 50s, you mentioned you played along Stan Musial, Ned Garver in 51, the year before you were there. He won uh, 20 games, and the team lost 100. That was kind of just the play to the Browns for, for most of those years. And toward the end, it was the infamous and uh, the famous uh, Mr. Vec who owned the ball club. And I, you spent some time living with him. Uh, do you remember what that was like, living at Sportsman's Park with Bill Vec in his personal apartment there? Well, you know why he had me live with him, I understand. Yeah, you had you'd regrettably lost some uh, some family members, and he took you in. That that says a lot about uh, maybe a side of him that I think most people didn't really know about in the game the the charitable side and the uh, maybe the more heartfelt side. I don't know a player that ever played for Bill Beck that didn't know that. There might have been someone he traded and whatever, but he was he was one of us. He was. Uh, I'm living with him. He, he had an apartment built 
inside of Portsmouth Park. You know, there's all that extra space in the bowels of the stadium. He had it torn out, and the cutest department you ever saw in his life, Bob Bill, played mostly day games, or night games, yeah. During the day, he would take a couple of pieces of fried chicken, bucket of balls and a bat, and he would pitch, and I would hit. Well, you know, he, he lost a leg up to the knee in the war, and by pitching, this thing would the peg leg or whatever it was, would rub his, his knee until it bled every day. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead. And so we, we did. Oh, I love Bill Bass. There's no general manager that I can ever close to could compare with Bill Bass. There were a lot of interesting characters on both both clubs in St. Louis that you played with, and in 52 you had some overlap with Satchel Page. Uh, what do you remember about the great Satchel Page? Well, I was lucky. You know, I grew up in Oakland uh, in the old ballpark. I arrived from Oklahoma one day. My dad rented a house about six blocks on the, on the same street as the minor league uh, stadium. Well, I, on the first day of school, and I was walking home, three o'clock, Opening day, 10,000 people at the stand. An outfielder named Brooks Holder hit a home run. And here I am standing out back of the left field fence with 50 other kids, but I was lucky enough to get the right balance and get that ball. Then we hung around until the seventh inning, and the gatekeeper said, Go on in. Well, as my mother would tell you, I went in. When I was nine, I came out of, of the stadium to go play professional baseball. I, I, I lived there. I, I slept there. It was a day game following a, a night game. I was, I was, I was uh, sleeping in the clubhouse. And Satchel, that was still, that was Negro League time. The Negro League teams would rent the stadium when Oakland was on the road every weekend. If they were on the road, one of the Negro League teams would, uh, would play there. So I knew Satchel since I was nine years old. In fact, he gave me a nickname that I, I wish it stuck, but it never did because my name was so weird to begin with. But he nicknamed me Firefly. You know, I was a long-haired, wore overalls half the time because I just didn't arrive from bug scuff in Oklahoma. And Satchel, of course, nicknamed everybody because he, he couldn't remember their proper name. And uh, the day I joined the Browns, I entered the clubhouse in the middle of the afternoon. It was a night game. And I heard noises. Well, one was Bob Bowman talking to somebody in the training room. And the other one was Satchel and a whirlpool bat. That's one of the reasons he lasted so long. He spent hours a day in a, in a whirlpool bath. And so I walked into to his voice, and we hadn't seen each other in four or five years. And he went over to shake his hand. He said, you the firefly. I said, yes, sir, I am. And I followed him around like a little puppy dog. 
So he recognized you after all those years from being nine until uh, many years later, you were a big league player yourself, and you didn't even have to introduce yourself. He just knew. Well, it was probably more like 13 okay. because they, they came every year four or five times. The Negro Leagues were named after a city and played a lot of games in that town. But most of the games, they played barnstorm. They went all over the country. And uh, so they, they play all of the odd minor league stadiums. A lot of stadiums, too. I think the Pittsburgh team used Forbes Field for their home team as well as Pirates. Now, I've heard that uh, Satchel Paige was not the only big-time star that you rubbed elbows with in St. Louis. Um, in fact, knowing Stan Musial, having a locker right next to his in 1959, actually helped you to meet a future president of the United States. How in the world <laughs> did that happen, J.W.? Tell us that story. Well, Stanley did not like Lobby City. Most players spend half of the afternoon either at the movies or sitting in the lobby watching the pretty girls walk by. Stan hated that. He 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 was he wanted to what he wanted action. So I'm walking through the lobby and gets off the elevator and yells at me and says, "Hey, let's take a walk." So we're in Milwaukee. We take a walk. He asked. Uh, we don't go two or three blocks in the island. As we get back within about a block of the hotel, we notice this big crowd is forming in front of the hotel. We hurry up to see what the heck's going on. Well, uh, Mr. Kennedy was campaigning August of '59. Uh, so as we get near the door, and there's people 20 deep on, on each side of the door, we Squirm our way into the middle of the crowd. Well, Kennedy gets out of the first car, and the head Secret Service man is rubbing elbows with him. But he looks in the crowd and recognizes Stan. Stan. So he whispers to the Secret Service guy. The guy didn't want to, but he did. He forced his way or part of the people and came to us in the middle of the crowd. And they visited for uh, Oh, close to five minutes, I thought. You know, both good Catholic boys. Mr. Kennedy was a big ball fan. Stan introduced me. I got to shake the future president's hand. And uh, as they were parting, Kennedy said, Mr. Musial, let's prove them wrong. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I have a paper I pick up. They're saying, I'm too old to play, and you're too young to... He's the president, so let's prove him wrong. Well, I, I think my memory is good enough to tell you that they did prove them wrong. <laughs> they certainly did prove them wrong. And, uh, you know, Stan, you mentioned him being older at that point, 59. He wasn't that far away from retirement, so you caught him toward the end of his career, but sharing a locker, or not sharing a locker, but being right next to him in, in that season, or parts of it at least, we all hear these stories about how Stan was just as great a person as he was a ball player. Everyone seems to have a Stan Musial story uh, around the Cardinals. What was Stan like in your experience, just being with him day in, day out? What was the, the man like? 
the most down-to-earth person you'd ever want to meet. I mean, if you didn't know what he had done, you would have thought he was an average golfer. He never bragged in any form. Uh, I come back more than he did. Uh, he was just, well, the good Lord was serious when he makes sad music, let's face it. You know, you, you, I, I've heard bad things said about the bonds here. I've never heard a word ever said about bad music. You played the Fort Wayne Bloomer Girls, one of the women's baseball teams, and with the Browns, I suppose. What do you remember uh, about that, playing that, that women's professional baseball team in Fort Wayne? Uh, that, that's that got to be an experience not a lot of big league ball players have had, J.W. No, and I treasure it. Actually, I wrote about it. Uh, I joined the club, and I, I had to go back home the very next day and catch a flight for the funeral in my family, and then I rejoined the club in St. Louis, and we played one game, and we go on a on a road trip, and of course everything was trained there. And so I, I'm sitting with Ray Coleman, one of the gentlemen that was traded along with me to to uh, the Browns, and uh, so I knew him because I had been trained with the White Sox after signing, and. Uh, so I sat with uh, next to Coleman, and I said, Ray, why are we going to Cleveland on an off day? And, you know, the train trip from St. Louis to Cleveland is not a very long trip. And he, and he starts laughing at me. I said, what are you laughing at? He said, don't you know that we are playing a game tonight? I said, well, not according to my schedule. He said, yeah, we're going to play a game up in Fort Wayne. I said, Fort Wayne, what organization are they in? <laughs> he laughed again. So he tells me we're playing the, the ladies. And at the end of seven innings, the score was Fort Wayne three, the Browns two. So we come in to hit in the top of the eighth, and Marty Marion, our manager, calls time out and gets everybody around him and says, Oh, if we lose this game, they will be talking about you for the rest of time. Well, as God would have it, we come up with two runs in the eighth and won the game 42. But believe me, those girls could play. They couldn't hit with us, but have you ever seen a real top-notch ladies softball game? I, yes, I certainly have, and I hold the conviction there's a lot of people who probably couldn't hit that ball with the way that, that they release. It's something. Well, and catch it uh, and throw it. And the, the ball's on you. The, those, that hot corner, is uh, it's close in softball. Well, all of these girls could play, and I wish they were still doing it. Actually, a couple of ladies from that team live about 30 miles from me and would come to the exhibition games and you know I worked at the stadium where the Cardinals and the Marlins train and uh, two of them live up the road to peace and still come to those games found out who they were and introduced myself and went to visit with them uh, quite regularly. 
Well, the thing, uh, like we said, J.W., toward the, the top of the show, uh, we are celebrating 50 years since Bob Gibson uh, hurled his 1.12 ERA in 1968. That was well after you played with Bob, but you had the distinction of catching in the major leagues, and that came as a Cardinal in 1959. Uh, we want to talk a, a lot about this, or at least a, a good portion, but I guess the first thing I want to ask is, what's your memory of when you found out that Bob was being called up? Because I think he came up with Tim McCarver at the same time, did he not? He did, and a third fellow named Jeff Long, who had hit a bunch of home runs at Tulsa. Uh, he, he he didn't make it. He wound up uh, playing professional golf, but in uh, the lower, lower minors, he did a lot of home runs. That game that I caught, well, the way it happened, I told everybody that I had ever met between Honolulu, that's as far that direction as I went, to an island off the coast of Scotland where my daughter met a Scot at the University of Arizona and married him. And so I've been that far east. And whether they wanted to hear the story or not, I told them about catching that game. So this went on for years. The Cardinals come to Jupiter, Florida, five on front door, the spring train. I meet the club owner at a brownie banquet, and he tells me that he was a skinny bat boy for the Browns when I was playing with him. I tell him the story just the way I thought it happened. So the spring training starts, and, you know, back when Tony LaRusso was the manager, and I suppose afterward too, but Gibby and uh, Lou Brock and Red Shady would come and be a part of spring training and help with coaching a little bit. So one day I get a chance to visit with Bob. And this, this game that we worked together came up. And he said, you're right, but you're wrong. And I said, oh, 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 what do you mean? He said, that was the year that they took me to spring training. And the manager was Sally Heeman. And I had a great spring. I thought I'd made the starting pitching roster. But he takes me aside and we go, go to... Cincinnati and open the season. And he says, Bob, I'm going to use you in the bullpen. I said, well, that's fine. But when we get back to St. Louis to open the season at home, I want you to send me to Omaha. I'm not a relief pitcher. But he he was used in relief in Cincinnati during that opening series. But he says, I ain't going to tell anybody. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I'm not, I haven't taken out a newspaper ad to straighten all those people out. When you were catching him, whether it was that day or you saw him throwing throughout that season at, at different points, did you think that there was something special and Hall of Fame-esque in front of you and Bob Gibson? Absolutely. What led you to I believe that? I could have gone right to the dugout. By the way, I had a normal that day. That's what I hear. The only National League home run I ever hit. But I, I caught Gibbies. I caught Jim Bunning quite a few times in Detroit. I caught Bob Lemon and 
in Cleveland. They were a lot alike. Off the field, they were wonderful guys. But don't mess with them off the field. Don't play any funny games. Just play baseball. And Gibby was like that. I think, I know there's been goofballs and been pitchers hall of fame, but I've got a feeling that most of them were, well, you know, the big lefty in Philadelphia. They say he, would, he didn't want you to speak to him that way. Gibby was pretty close to that. Give me the ball and shut up. Do you remember Bob being nervous at all? And I don't know if he would he would fess up to it today if, if he did feel nervous or not, maybe. But uh, what do you remember about his demeanor going into the start? Well, I don't think he had a nervous bone in his body. I think he was great, and I think he knew it. And uh, I've, I've talked to, to McCarver about it, and he basically told, told McCarver, you know, I'm the pitcher. The ball is mine. You come, you come to the mound if you have to, but keep your p- opinions to yourself. He, he just had, you know, the great stuff. And if you had hit a loud, loud foul off of him, you, you had to dust your pants off after the next pitch. He definitely had that intimidating swagger about him throughout his career, uh, and it sounds like he was plenty confident, but do you remember him having that intimidating uh, facade, I guess, or that intimidating stature? Yeah. He, uh, he, we had some pretty raggedy pitching. That was a bad year for the Cardinals. Uh, Jackson was the only real major league pitcher that we had. So he just warmed up like a Hall of Famer. Sat in a dugout like a Hall of Famer. Went to bat was a was a good hitter. Everything about him was Hall of Fame. Throughout his his time that year that you you were with him, and I know it was really a, a short portion of his career and you weren't with the Cardinals in retrospect all that long, but when you watched him throw what was the thing about him? You mentioned his stuff a second ago. What was the thing about him to you, if you had to pick one thing and say, this separated Bob Gibson or anybody like him from the average Joe that, that pitches in Major League Baseball, what was the thing that stood out to you about Bob Gibson? Confidence. You know, it just, I've, I forget his record, but uh, that year, you know, he had pitched a full season at Omaha. Triple A. I think he won 17 games and hardly lost any. He was just popping out in all directions. This is me without saying so. He certainly settled in and and had a great career. What was it like for you when you're watching him in 64 and in 67 and certainly in 68, really just an upward swing from 62 through 70 when, when he's dominating baseball, and you knew that you had a, at least a part of his story. Well, it, it, it made me proud to have been there. In fact, uh, my whole career, even though I was an average player and bounced around, uh, I got to play with some great people, great players. I think I played with 14 all time. Well, Kayla, I played with three years. Never saw him make an error, except when he made a perfect throw to 
needed from right field to third base, and the runner would run into the ball. That would make a shame. It was a, a thrown strike, but the in between. Uh, first year he played uh, right field in Briggs Stadium. He ran into the fence in foul territory. Went back for the following season. The owner of the team had 3,000 seats torn out so that there was more foul territory for Kayland to roam in. I was lucky to have played that season. Well, J.W., you certainly have had a, a remarkable baseball career and a remarkable baseball life. Uh, we really appreciate your time today talking about the Cardinals, the Browns, Bob Gibson, and everything else that, uh, that you've shared with us. It's been a real treat for myself, for everyone listening, just to hear the stories about everywhere you've been, everywhere you, that you've played. Thank you so much for your time, J.W. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. I really hope that you enjoyed hearing from JW as much as I enjoyed getting to hear from him. He's got a, a great recollection on some neat moments, snapshots from the history of baseball, including catching Bob Gibson as a rookie in 1959. And he's got a bunch of other great stories in the game. I hope that you just enjoyed soaking them up and basking in that kind of life experience. Big thanks to JW, to his family for uh, helping to get him on, and also again to Ed Wheatley of the St. Louis Browns Historical Society who knew JW and arranged for us to talk over the phone a couple of months ago. Hey, want to remind you that Monday, May the 7th, is Kurt Warner Night here at Bush Stadium. Join the celebration of the Super Bowl champion and recent Pro Football Hall of Fame inductee Kurt Warner. Fans purchasing a special theme ticket receive a one-of-a-kind Kurt Warner Hall of Fame bobblehead. Get your tickets at cardinals.com theme. Excited about next week on the program, Ben Hockman of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch joins us. He's got a new book out called The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the St. Louis Cardinals. So more history talk next week. Plus, Ben, of course, does cover the current team. It'll be interesting to, to just hear from him about covering his team that he grew up rooting for in his hometown. So we'll dig into history and also just hear a little bit of maybe about Ben's career next week on the show. If you want to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe. You can do that at cardinals.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Simply search Cardinals Insider. We have our own dedicated feed at both of those outlets, iTunes and cardinals.com slash podcast. You can also get in touch with the show, podcast with an S, at cardinals.com. I heard from a gentleman from across the pond in England earlier this week. That was a real treat for me. I always love hearing from you if you're a listener. Really do appreciate you dialing in, whether it's weekly or just here and there as there's stuff that you want to hear. It's great to be with you and great to have you be a part of the program. Until next week, for JW Porter, for Ed Wheatley, for arranging it, my name is Brett McMillan. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you next time on the Cardinals Insider Podcast. Okay. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 